Welcome, everyone. Glad you're with us. If you're a guest, man, glad you're with us, especially. Can we do what we sometimes do and remind ourselves that we're part of one church that gets to meet in all these locations and just give a big shout-out to everyone at all the campuses. Say welcome. Hey, Edgewood. Hey, Bel Air. Hey, Abingdon. Hey, Mountain Road. Uh, if you're joining us online, glad you're with us. Uh, again, if you're a guest, really glad you're with us today. We're in week three already of uh, You Asked For It, where we're just trying to remind ourselves, you know, church should be a place where it's okay to ask questions and to bring even tough questions, even if we don't know exactly how to answer them, and we're going to go to God for those answers. There's a, there's a verse in Scripture, uh, James chapter 1, verse 5, that says, if any of you lacks wisdom, now I know I'm not talking to any of you, but it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, what does it say we should do? What? Ask God, yeah. It, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and will be given to you. It's a reminder that if you're a Christ follower, it's the first place we look for answers. We go to God. Before you, before, before you Google it, when we're talking about important subjects, when we're talking about big issues or topics, before you go to Siri or just hit up Alexa or go to Wikipedia, ask God. We're saying, God, what do you, what do you think about this? What does God want? This is, I think, the idea behind another scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says what our goal is to take captive every thought. Take captive every thought and then bring it to Jesus, make it obedient to Jesus. Can you imagine your life if you took captive every thought? Instead of letting our thoughts just run where they will, where our feelings, our emotions, or the media tells us to go, on big topics, we take them captive, we wrestle them in, and we bring them to Jesus and say, okay, you teach me how to think here about that. And it's pretty challenging to do that. I think a lot of people are comfortable taking captive thoughts that have to do with spirituality or churchy things and bring those to God and let him direct that part of our lives. But when it comes to like what we consider to be real life, like everyday life, it's trickier sometimes to take captive every thought. I'm going to challenge you to do that today, to take captive every thought. And bring it to the Lord. I think it's sort of like putting on a pair of glasses. Like when I put on this pair of glasses, all of a sudden, everything I see through my eyes, I now see through these lenses. So I look at these two handsome brutes over here. Actually, wait a second. Oh, yeah, it's, it's they're not, not handsome gonna, at all. It's I not going to help. Yeah. But, but I see everything through these lenses, right? And I feel like God says to us, like, here, I want you to put on a pair of God glasses and learn to see people issues, topics, problems through these lenses as a way of kind of coming to what you think. And here's, here's the honest truth. I think it's just pretty easy to do with some things, but very difficult with others to keep our God glasses on. I think particularly it's difficult when we get into areas like politics, when we get into areas that have political implications and partisanship and uh, it has to do with policy and emotional issues that a lot of us hold really dear. Well, then it's trickier to keep the God glasses on. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say, I, I think that a lot of American Christians I see, 
actually kind of have their political perspective as their main glasses. And that's how they look at everything, including God. They jam and ram Jesus into their political perspective viewpoint instead of the other way around. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. You want to follow me? Matthew 6, Jesus says, seek first, seek first his kingdom. And then all the other things come after that. And that's what I think it means to bring every thought captive. So the question may be for us is something like this. If you're, a, if you're not a Christ follower, you can think anything you want about anything. But if you say, I'm a Christ, I'm a, I'm a Christian, well then... The question is, are you primarily, as your fundamental identity, a Christian who then might happen to be a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or whatever viewpoint you would have on things? Or is it the other way around, where you're like primarily, your identity, your lens is Republican or Democrat or your viewpoint, and then you might happen to be a Christian kind of on the side. You see the difference? It's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big, important difference. Christian isn't an adjective, you know, like a little modifier for, I'm like a Republican, I'm a Christian Republican, though. I'm a Christian, you know, it's not, a, it's, it's an identity, y'all. Christian is who we are. It's a fundamental commitment. And that's how what we mean when we say, seek first the kingdom of God and take every thought captive. So here's the question that will kind of govern our, our, our thought today, is do you look at politics through the lens of Jesus and his kingdom or do you tend to look at Jesus and his kingdom through the lens of your politics? So as we think about that, we're going to put our God glasses on, and we're going to try to tackle a couple of topics today that I think a lot of us immediately would have a knee-jerk reaction and say, well, that's a political issue. But when you look a little further with God lenses, you see there's some bigger things we've got to talk about before they become political issues. And so I've got a couple of doozy questions and a couple of doozy dudes to, to uh, drug in off the street to tackle these. So let's jump in, guys, okay? So Anthony, you're up first. What should a Christian think about immigration, okay? Good luck with that. I'll be, I'm getting out of here. So. <laughs> All right, buddy, you're on. Go. Yes, what should we think about immigration? Everyone seems to agree we have an immigration problem. But the exact nature of that problem is heatedly disputed. Republican and Democratic voters sharply disagree about this issue of immigration. Attitudes diverge sharply. Nobody wants to concede. While the partisan debate continues to get heated, 60 million people from all over the world are displaced. And 20 million of those are displaced away from their own country. 6.7 million people, that's the modern population of Maryland, of Syrian refugees have fled their homeland because of the war. And they go to Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, and neighboring countries. These numbers represent real people, real stories. Mothers, fathers, daughters, and sons. Hundreds of thousands of children have died in Syria because of this war. It's a generation coming that all they know is this war, and they'll be traumatized. We have another problem. A study has shown that only 12% of church folks say our opinions about immigrations are influenced by our faith. 
And this really clouds our perception of reality about this topic, where we mostly just say they are just an economic burden. They are here to affect the values of our lives and the way we live. Maybe we need to pause and ask God, what's God saying about this subject of immigration? Is there a higher plane that we can rise in God and see how he thinks about all these displaced people? And before we dive in this, let's ask, who's an immigrant? Mm -hmm. Immigrant is a person who's left their land of his or her birth, moved to another country, intending to settle there. Generally, those entering the country or remaining in the country are either documented or undocumented, meaning they are legal or not legal. Not all immigrants are illegal. In fact, so many of them are stuck in the process of being legal in this country. Why do people migrate? Some come seeking employment for better living standards for their families. Many are fleeing, fleeing natural disasters like earthquakes, wars, gang violence. Some are really just trying to reunite with their families. Others come to seek better education. What if we can start to think about this subject afresh? Start anew here today. Can we wear those glasses that Ben is talking about and see if we can view this with God's perspective? Maybe we go back into the beginning. And the book of the beginning is the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 1:27, we see, it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. We see that each human being is made in the image of God. Each person has dignity, and this includes immigrants. God says, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. In addition, we find this theme of immigration mentioned throughout the Bible. The term like foreigner, stranger, alien, sojourner appears 92 times, and it means immigrant. Many heroes of scripture, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Ruth, David, Daniel, they were all immigrants crossing borders under many of the same circumstances as today's migrants, fleeing poverty and famine, aiming to reunite with their families, seeking asylum, or trafficked involuntarily. One of these heroes we're going to look at here today is Abraham. We find his story in Genesis 12, verse 10 through 16. And I'll read. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while. Because why? Because the famine was severe. Genesis introduces us to Abraham in 12, verse 1. When God asked Abraham, Take your things, take your people, your family, but leave the rest of your people and your land and move and go. And then as you go, I'll tell you where you are going. And Abraham obeys and he leaves. And after he leaves, he finds himself in the middle of a famine. 
and he has to find something to eat. And in the middle of that, he has to migrate. He's forced to migrate into Egypt. And Egypt was the wealthier superpower of the day. It had a river, River Nile, that was able to feed hundreds and thousands of people. And so people around Egypt would go there to be fed. Verse 11 says, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know that you're a beautiful woman. And the wife is wondering, where is he going with this? <laughs> when the Egyptians see you, Abraham is saying, they'll say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me. But they will let you leave. So, how about you say you're my sister? So I'll be treated well for your sake. And my life will be spared because of you. And Abraham came to Egypt. The Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. When the Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep and cattle and male and female donkeys. He got wealthy because of his wife. What would you call that today? Could you say this is trafficking? Sarah is doubly displaced. First, as an immigrant. And second, she becomes a victim of human trafficking. More than 60% of immigrant women crossing the border into the United States are sexually assaulted. Despite this, Christians are able to view Abraham in the larger story of faith because Abraham later becomes the father of our faith. We view him with a bigger consideration of who he became in the story of God. I wonder if we can have the same perspective of bigger consideration. Is God calling us to extend the same considerations to immigrants? Many immigrants are motivated by faith to cross the borders. The same way we view Abraham's mistakes within the context of a larger story may be what God is calling us today to view all humans who cross the border with that same consideration of God's bigger story of everybody. I am grateful to God for this country for this church, for Renee and her family, because they were able to see me beyond the label of an immigrant and welcome me and fed me, and now I serve here. And I thank God for that. Let's go back to Abraham's story. He later becomes a nation. His family grows and they become a nation, what we know, a nation of Israel. And for most of his existence, Israel was immigrating from place to place. During the process, God gave Israel a constitution of how to exist as people of God. And the majority of those laws were about being considerate to the immigrant. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 18, God says to them, God defends the cause of the fatherless of the widow 
and loves the foreigner residing among you, God is telling Israel. He gives them food and clothing. God established these rules to ensure that immigrants could meet their own basic needs. He tells Israel not to harvest entirely all their fields, to always leave some food on the edge of their fields for the poor and the foreigner. He gives them the same days of rest, the Sabbath day. He gives them the rights and freedom from oppression. Pay them the same wages. Give them the same citizenships. God reminded Israel over and over, never forget that you were once immigrants before. And all these laws flow from God's gracious character. Many people are shocked when they learn that Jesus was a refugee. Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, were forced to migrate to Egypt because a tyrant wanted to kill all the boys. They became strangers in a foreign land. And because of that experience, Jesus can empathize with millions of refugees today fleeing their country due to wars, natural disasters, persecutions. The average time refugees take to settle in another country is 17 years. We don't know how they treated Mary and Joseph. Maybe they gave them a shelter. Maybe they did not. Were they harassed? Did the local carpenter say, Joseph, he's come here to take our jobs. He's affecting how we pay people around. No, 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 they, they came from another land. Maybe they're bringing diseases. We don't know. One thing we may know is this experience helped to shape Jesus to really know how it feels to be a stranger. Even to the point where he taught, love the strangers. As you love yourself. That's why God calls us to practice hospitality. You find this in Romans 12, 13. This hospitality is more than provision that we see in hotels and restaurants. In Greek word, philoxenia means the love of strangers. Sharing a meal with a stranger is hospitality. Everyone can eat with someone else. The need for sustenance puts all people, rich or poor, on the same level because we all eat. No wonder Jesus is always going to have a meal or living from a meal. It is not surprising the Bible reminds us to always welcome a stranger because you never know when you are welcoming angels into your homes. Welcoming the stranger also opens up new opportunities to make disciples of all nations. The world has come to our doors and Jesus has commanded us to be hospitable to the stranger who is now our neighbor, even though he's from another world. Our partnership with organizations like World Relief and Lassos 
really helps us to love our neighbor who has come from another world. Jesus modeled this kind of life with his own life and with his death. How to move from hostility to hospitality. Revolutionary hospitality placed Christianity in, on the map in the first century. Hospitality changes us and it changes them. Jesus was a stranger in the wrong places to make sure, to make sure strangers can be in the right place when it comes to their standing before God. And that's why, that's why we all want to be on God's side. Thank you, Anthony. That, that's a challenge. There's so much there, and I love how uh, he helped us land that with hospitality. Um, you know, there are so many global issues with this, big ones. And as a nation, we're right now, aren't we, trying to figure out, like, what do we all think and what should we do? Build a wall, not build a wall. And there's lots of things that a nation has to figure out about its policies and its laws and its processes. But you almost have to look at this, like, aside from that, uh, not everyone's going to agree on what our country should do at its borders. But as Christ followers, it's very clear what we will do and must do with anyone presented before us and how we view people. Those are two kind of different things. I think we can have different opinions about exactly the way the country should enforce its policies, but we don't have any freedom to think about how we think about people because that is actually given to us right out of the heart of God as we move from hostility to hospitality. And whatever you do take to your position as a politician or, or or a voting booth person, ought to be informed, has to be informed, if you're a Christ follower, by the lenses that Anthony's helped us see. So, in fact, I wonder if even at Thanksgiving this year, as we think about opening our homes and our tables to our families, maybe there's others, whether an immigrant or someone who needs to get their feet under our table, even as we open our homes and our hearts to that. Thank you, Anthony. Okay, we got to keep moving, all right? Now, you're not nearly as smart as Anthony, so I gave you an easy one, okay? (laughs) Actually, I, I wish it were easy. It's not as easy as it sounds. Uh, here you go, Kirk. Should a Christian be an environmentalist? Well, yeah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good luck. Okay, well, hey, that can seem like a tough question, yeah. but really it's pretty simple. It actually reminds me of this other question. So how do you describe an acorn? Don't know. Well, in a nutshell, it's an oak tree. <laughs> yeah, come on. That's pretty good, don't, right? You don't have to encourage him. <laughs> All right, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay, hey. I've said worse. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, here we go. In a nutshell, Christians and the environment. One of the basic things that we believe about God is that back at the beginning of everything, God created the earth and everything on it. God created you and me. He created the oceans and the mountains. He created watermelons and whales. He created pine trees and porcupines. And then he said, all of this, everything, it's good. And then we agree with God, and humans have for a long time agreed with God and said, yes, this is good. Creation is good. So, you know, there's some words that can come up sometimes when we start to have a conversation about environmental care. 
And some of these words can be inspiring for some of us, but some of these words are scary. And sometimes they just leave us a little bit confused. They're words like environmentalist, hippies, <laughs> yeah, global warming, tree huggers, deforestation, granola. <laughs> and you know, we probably have strong reactions to some of these words because they are words that are political. But you know, Anthony, you just showed us here a few minutes ago that it's so important for us to look past just the words and to look at the deeper issue. What's really happening here on a deeper level? That's what we want to do. We want to look past just the controversial words and we want to start seeing what our theology is, what we think about creation and creator. Anthony, you showed us just a few moments ago how humans, we find our identity and our value and our dignity in the book of Genesis, that first book of the Bible. And so we're going to go there again mm -hmm. right now. So back at the beginning of everything God created, he created humans and he gave them the task to care for the earth. In Genesis 1, it says this, God spoke. Let us make human beings in our nature, making them, make them reflecting our nature so they can be responsible for the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the cattle, and yes, earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth. You hear that? We're responsible for creation. We have responsibility. Now that's from the message translation of the Bible. Maybe you've heard that verse before from another translation. Maybe you grew up with another translation, and it probably used a word like dominion over, or to rule over, or govern, rather than using the word responsibility. You know, sometimes when we hear those words, it makes us think of power and control, but in this context, when it says to govern, that carries the weight of seeking the welfare and the best interests of all creation, where everything that God created thrives because it is so well cared for. That means that when resources are used, they're used in a responsible way. And it means that when there are problems, when there are issues, they're not neglected. Hey, that word dominion, let's talk about dominion for a second. It implies kingship. God is a good and gracious king, and he's got dominion over all of creation, and he shares that dominion with us. He shares that responsibility with us. So humans' dominion in creation, it's never a license to abuse, to dominate, to waste, or to treat carelessly. Because you know what that is? When that happens, that's tyranny. That's tyranny. The dominion we have is a reflection of God's character. And we know that to be this, kindness and compassion and care. Another way our responsibility to creation care can be articulated is stewardship. That's, stewardship is taking care of something that doesn't belong to you with the same level of investment as if it was yours. Hey, we're just tenants around here. The whole earth, it's all God's. In the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 2, the story is told again. After God creates the Adam, he sets him on a task. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. You get it? To work it? He was, 
to work it and take care of it. So, so God set the first humans to the task of gardening. Hey, anybody in here have a garden? Yeah, a few people do. Yeah. Guess what? My family does too. It's a lot of work, right? Yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's also a source of joy. It's like this, that each season we get to be co-creators with God through this little piece of dirt in my backyard. You know, it feeds us physically through the produce, but it feeds us spiritually as things grow inside of us like patience and trust and faith. So we need a theology of ecology. So how do we do that? Well, to have a theology of ecology first, you have to have an appreciation of creation. To care for creation means you need to care about creations. That means that you need to get in touch with this world that God has made. Get outside. Get outside. Hey, so many of us can go days on end without ever really being in touch with nature. I mean, you can get up in the morning, you can go get in your car in the garage and drive to work to sit at a desk all day just to get back in your car, drive home to the same garage, go sit on the same couch, binge watch the same Netflix show, go to the same bed, and then the next morning, do it all over again. Hey, we need to get in touch with creation. Maybe you need to take some practical steps to get in touch with everything that God has made. Maybe you need to go for a walk in the woods. You know, right here in Maryland, you can be on the sandy beaches of Assateague or you can be in the Appalachian Mountains. It's a gift that we live in a place that has such diverse beauty. It's a gift. But you know, maybe you need to just take the opportunities that come along every day to acknowledge creation and creator. Maybe you need to take a moment as you walk to the mailbox to pause And watch the leaves that are falling. Or maybe as you're walking in from the car one night, you need to stop and look up at the night sky, at the stars with awe and wonder. Hey, you know, God made every single one of those stars. And then you need to move from appreciation to adoration. Let that enjoyment of nature move you to a place of worship. You know, in some other religions, it seems that there's a worship of creation. Now, we don't worship the earth or we don't worship created things here. We worship the creator. You know, we're not all about Mother Earth. We're about the God of heaven and earth. Hey, in the last few weeks, we've, had to, we've been able to watch the leaves change colors and fall and it's beautiful. And every year when that happens, I move to a deep place of worship. And I just want to sing songs to God. And sometimes it's just me and God. Hey, the Bible is full of places where people worship the Creator. They worship God when they come in contact with this beautiful creation. Psalm 8 says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what are humans that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? Hey, the next time you find yourself in awe of creation, admiring the beauty of what God has made, do this. Turn it into worship. Just tell God, wow, God, you're so awesome. Thank you for making the leaves to change colors, and and it's so beautiful. Or God, thank you for the beauty and the peace that is in the falling snow. 
Maybe you need to do like the hymn writer did and start singing songs to God, expressing the beauty of creation. Hey, let's sing this song together right now. Maybe you know this song. We're just going to sing a worship song together right now, okay? If you know this, sing along. Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars and I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe display. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Hey, appreciation leads to adoration, and that needs to move us to a place of activation. You know what that means? It means you got to do something about it. One of my favorite songs right now says this. It says, turn off the news and build a garden. I love that. I love that because it means this, that like I'm not just taking in what other people say, but I'm actively joining in with God in creation. And hey, let's be honest here. You know, in this last hundred years, we haven't done a very good job of taking care of creation. You know, we've polluted the land and the air and the water. We've killed off species of animals. And we need to repent and say to God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The earth and everything on it, including you and me, were made to point to the goodness and the glory of the Creator. And when we abuse the earth and when we exploit God's creatures, we hinder the worship that all created things participate in. And hey, I know there's some big stuff. There's big stuff that needs to happen when we start having a conversation about the environment. And I'm grateful that there are Christians who really care and are working really hard on the things that are going to make the biggest differences in this world. You know, if you're a scientist, or you're a biologist, or you're an ecologist, or you're a politician, we need you. We need you to make a difference in the name of Jesus in this world for the sake of all creation. We need you. But hey, you don't have to be a scientist or even an activist to make a difference. So right now, let's talk really briefly about some practical things that we can all do starting today to make a difference, to care for God's green earth. First, we've talked about this. Plant a garden. Plant a garden. Hey, I got these gloves here. They kind of like represent planting a garden. When you plant a vegetable garden, you not only get the benefits of healthy food for yourself, personal gardening helps to reduce the use of fossil fuels that are consumed in the transportation of produce. You can control the use of pesticides and chemicals that are damaging to you and to the soil and to marine life and the runoff waterways. Hey, we could all make a difference if we just planted a garden. Okay. Hey, can you hold those for a second? Thanks. <laughs> hey, uh, 
You know, one of the easiest things we can do is to start using a reusable water bottle. So just in this country annually, 50 billion water bottles are purchased every year. Hey, that takes around 17 million barrels of oil to make and transport those single-use plastic water bottles. So maybe you need to get a water bottle like this one. So, or, or, the, or this one. I, I wouldn't get one like that. But uh, <laughs> just, just saying. No, I, I'm just saying. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> hey, get a, get a reusable water bottle and do this. Every time you take a drink out of that water bottle, turn your heart and your mind and your soul to God with gratitude for the fact that you live in a place where clean drinking water comes out of a faucet in your home. One more. Yeah. One more. Start carrying some reusable grocery bags like this one. Just throw it in the trunk of your car so you don't forget. It's super easy. You know, the average American throws away 307 plastic grocery bags every year. Hey, what if we stopped thinking this way? Like, man, I'm not an environmentalist. What can I do? What if we started thinking this way? Man, I'm a Christian. And I care about what God has made. So I'm going to do everything I can every single day of my life to make a difference. I want to make a difference. And hey, we have to say this today. When we care for the environment, we're also caring for some of the most vulnerable people on earth. You know, the places in the world that are most impacted by our collective neglect of the environment, it's places that are under-resourced, people that live in systemic poverty. When water is polluted, it leads to lives full of disease, and when land is polluted, it becomes infertile, and that leads to hunger and hopelessness. And when I make decisions to not care about the environment, it may not seem like it's making that big of a difference. It may not seem like it affects me directly, but you can be certain that it's felt in places like Kenya, where Anthony's from, places where people live that are loved by God and they need to be loved by us. Hey, we can send all the aid and help and missions trips and Bibles to the places that are in desperate need, but we also need to work to make sure that the lives of those people are better through the stewardship of this earth that we all share. And hey, we are all, as members of God's creation, responsible to and for each other. Here's a good word for us today. You don't have to be a wacky or an activist or one of those people, however you define that. Hey, we want to move to a place where we all see each other, whether you have a passport or not or where it's from. It doesn't matter. God said that what he made is good, and that includes you and me, legals and illegals, sinners and saints, and those people and we all want to look at the world that we share and say this hey we've made some mistakes here but it's still God's and it's still good and then together as brothers and sisters representatives of God's kingdom here on earth do everything we can to protect uphold preserve and honor that goodness amen well said buddy that's well said and uh, a great challenge for us. I'm seeing a connection between these two. Are you, are you picking that up? 
you know, we went back to Genesis, and it talks about how important it is then to honor people that are created in God's image. And Kirk's re uh, reminding us it's important to honor the creation that God has given us. And there is a connection, and this is part of what it means to be part of God's kingdom when he's king, when God gets what God wants. And, you know, part of that kingdom, what, what's happening is, you know, God is busy at work restoring all things. Do you know this? This is what God is doing. He's restoring all things back to the way they were intended to be and the way they actually were in creation that we just talked about. That's what God is doing. He's fixing what is broken and putting everything to rights. So you remember at the beginning when things were created, it was good. Relationships were good. There was harmony. The word in the Bible is shalom. It means there was deep peace with God, with one another, with creation itself. There was shalom. There was no pollution or destruction no displaced people, no hatred or wars or, or smog, and we were with God, and He dwelled with us. And then, of course, we know sin, through our own rebellion, enters the picture and messes everything up. But it didn't just mess up our spiritual standing with God. The Bible's very clear that sin is, is a curse that the earth itself suffers under. And Romans says that all creation groans and aches, that that creation itself is frustrated by the effects of the curse that are on all of us. And we feel the effects of that to this day. All of us do. Whether through decay or disease, divorce, death itself, loneliness, violence. These are all the opposite of shalom, the way God made things to be. And we, re and we, we can feel that. We all know this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Everyone, whether you're religious or not, we know that there's something better that maybe is supposed to be. Don't we know that? It's like shalom is imprinted on our hearts. The Bible says eternity is in the hearts of every creature. That we have a longing for Eden. We remember it somehow in our bones. And we know, and God in fact promises, oh, it's coming again. God promises that he says, I will reverse the curse. I will one day, I will recreate my earth. I will make all things new. That's the restoration business God is in. And he intends to do that, to take them back to the way they were at the beginning. And God has proved his ability to do that. You know how? By sending his son, Jesus Christ, who defeated death, who rose again to show he can reverse the curse. He can overcome the power of sin and its effects on the planet. And he is now making all things new. And all who trust Christ have access to that shalom, to that peace, to that restoration that we all really, really are hungry for. And he invites us, even more, he invites us to join him in the work he is doing on the planet to bring his kingdom. That's what we taught us to pray. He taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And he is bringing his kingdom. And he sent Jesus to start it. He's asking us to work with it to bring it on earth as it is in heaven. And one day Jesus will come again. And the kingdom will be complete. And he will reign. And he will bring the new heaven and the new earth. And all who trust Christ will be joined together in an awesome celebration, a feast, a huge motley crew. Uh, all who are in Christ will be together, and there will be a place for everybody. There will be no displaced people. The Bible says it will be every tongue and tribe and nation represented there. 
And it'll be an amazing time. It'll burst into worship. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 that all creation will join in the worship that they were meant to at the beginning. And so can you picture it? We're there, we're eating, we're with one another, and, and heaven is singing along, and the angels are there, and the trees, Isaiah 55 says, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song, and the trees will clap there. Can you imagine me have a backup band made up of trees and mountains just swinging and getting down to the glory of God together with one another? That's where we're headed, the Bible says. He's restoring us, and he's restoring all of creation. The Bible says the lion will lie down with the lamb, Meaning redeemed, I believe that, the redeemed Republicans and redeemed Democrats will be friends in heaven. Redeemed Patriots fans and redeemed Ravens fans will be, will be speaking well of one another in glory. Revelation 21 says, I, I can see it all, plain as day. I see a, the new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. In verse 3 it says that the dwelling place of God is finally going to be with us again. Shalom comes when God comes, and Jesus says, I'm coming again. And when I do, it all comes together, and I will be your God, and I'll wipe every tear from your eyes. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more mourning. The curse will be reversed. There's no crying or pain for the old order. Friends, that's where we live now, where we got to talk about immigration and environmentalism. The old order will one day be passed away. And we celebrate that truth and we look forward to that day. And so we're going to close right now by sharing in communion together as we do every week at Mountain. And it's a reminder of this. It's not just, communion isn't just a time to look back and remember what Jesus has done to redeem us. It's a time to look forward to what he's going to do and, and when he comes again. And so we'll do that today as the, as the bread and the cup are passed. They're just appetizers to the great marriage feast that we'll celebrate one day together with Jesus. They're just a little foretaste, just a little reminder. And all who trust Christ are not only invited to participate in this meal today, but that ultimate day when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, today, when you partake, just let your heart long for the day when everything will be right again. And let Jesus prompt you to how you can be a part of bringing God's kingdom to come on earth as it is supposed to be in heaven. And if you're outside of Christ today, you're isolated from God. You might have temporary happiness here and there in your life, but you will never have the deep shalom that you're meant to have. And your life can be new and restored as well through Christ. We encourage you today to take that step. As soon as our service is over, you come and tell someone we'll help you know how to take your next steps. All of us right now, let's use these next moments of quiet as worship and praise. We're going to go right into bust out in worship and you can picture the trees of the field clapping their hands along with us as we worship our God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for creating such a beautiful place for us to call home and then granting it to us and encouraging us to take care of it the way that you would. We thank you for the people around us, the people on our doorstep, the people on the other side of the world that remind us how gracious you are to us. We pray that you'll teach us the gift of hospitality with one another and with your earth. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.